from NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. Enough Democrats returned to the Texas House last week to constitute a quorum after a holdout of six weeks. Plus, the battle over mask mandates in public schools continues to wind its way through the courts, and a North Texas congressman visits to discuss the withdrawal from Afghanistan, infrastructure, and other news out of Washington. Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers this week will be joined by State Representative Chris Turner, Chair of the House Democratic Caucus, Republican Congressman Roger Williams, and Fort Worth ISD Superintendent Kent Scribner. Before we get started, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the Lone Star Politics Podcast. It helps us grow the show and helps others find it. Three Democrats returned to the Texas House of Representatives on Thursday, giving the chamber enough members to achieve a quorum, or enough present to conduct business according to the chamber's rules. Democrats' holdout lasted for 38 days and forced Republican Governor Greg Abbott to call a second special session this summer. At issue is an elections bill that Democrats say will suppress the vote in Texas. Republicans say the added ID requirements, limits on mail voting in drop boxes, and new controls over local elections officials are meant to protect against fraud. Chair of the House Democratic Caucus Representative Chris Turner of Arlington did not return to the chamber last week, but he did talk to Julian Gromer. Joining us this morning, State Representative Chris Turner, who chairs the House Democratic Caucus. Thanks so much for being here, Chair Turner. Thank you, Julie. Good to be with you. Several of the Democrats returned at different times, but the group did not go back together. How do you move forward as a caucus? Well, Julie, uh, more than a month ago, uh, 57 members of the House Democratic Caucus made a commitment to our constituents and to one another. Uh, that we would break quorum, we would uh, stay out for the entire first special session uh, and kill uh, the Republican anti-voter bill and use that time productively in Washington, D.C. to advance the national conversation on federal voting rights measures, uh, which we have done successfully. And so uh, we took it day by day in the second special session, We're trying to burn off as much time as possible. Uh, but uh, we've reached a point where uh, that there are now less than uh, 50 members uh, who wanted to continue staying out. Uh, and so now the next phase of this fight moves to the floor of the House, through the committee process in the House, and we'll continue to push back and fight with everything we have uh, against Republican efforts to make it harder for our constituents to vote, uh, to uh, make it harder for our healthcare professionals to respond to this pandemic, uh, and, and really highlight the differences between Republican priorities and the priorities of the people of Texas. Representative, I know that, you know, you guys wanted to go back as a group, and there were folks even that shared uh, Representative Garnett Coleman's uh, opinion that uh, you should go back to, uh, to the House chambers. But how disappointed are you that, you know, everybody didn't go back at the same time? Well, that, that, would, have been, uh, that would have been preferable. Uh, I'll certainly acknowledge that. Um, but the reality is, is that every member of the House, every member of the Democratic Caucus is represented, uh, is elected to represent their districts and to do what they believe is right for their constituents on any given day. Um, and just as, you know, we had members of our caucus who chose to not break quorum in the first place, uh, they chose to remain in Austin. Uh, we never uh, in any way questioned their motives uh, because they thought that was the right thing to do for their constituents and for their districts. And, and therefore, will continue to respect the decision of each and every member on how they best represent their constituents 
as a member of the Texas House. Now, some members of the caucus have indicated that even though there is now a quorum, they will not go back to participate. What do you think of that strategy? Well, I, I understand uh, their frustration and uh, the, the, what they're what they're suggesting uh, by, by continuing to stay out. Um, I would just submit that uh, once we reach the point where there are bills on the floor of the House, uh, it's important that members be there to represent their districts to vote uh, on behalf of their constituents. And, uh, and I think that's what, what most members will choose to do. So that, does that mean that you are planning to go back then? Like if, there, if there are votes on the floor of the House, I int definitely intend to be there uh, to be the voice for my constituents in Arlington and Grand Prairie. That's what my constituents expect me to do. Uh, they expect me to vote against uh, Greg Abbott's anti-voter bill, uh, against Greg Abbott's uh, attempts to marginalize uh, certain kids and, and his attempts to make it more difficult for first responders uh, for healthcare professionals and for school districts to respond to the pandemic. Uh, I'm going to be there to represent my constituents. You know, with Republicans in the majority and elections bill already passed the Senate, what's the strategy now for Democrats? So uh, there's a couple different things. Um, you know, first off, the, the Senate has, as you said, has passed their own bill. Uh, the House bill, I do expect to look different, uh, but it's important that we uh, work as hard as we can to make it different. Uh, to remove some of the more onerous provisions of the bill, as they have already been removed, frankly, thanks to the work of our caucus in the first walkout that occurred at the end of May. Uh, they dropped several uh, particularly egregious provisions as a result of that pushback. Um, and, and it's also important, Julie, that we establish a record. Uh, whatever bill uh, uh, Republicans come up with, uh, if it does become law, uh, it will inevitably uh, be subject of litigation uh, as a violation of the Voting Rights Act uh, and the Constitution, most likely. Uh, so it's very important that Democrats uh, establish a record on this bill, both in the committee process uh, and on the floor of the Texas House, uh, in the event that it did eventually become. Representative, uh, are there issues on the uh, special session agenda where you think uh, you can work to, with Republicans, especially when it comes to uh, COVID in Texas? We're, we, you know, we're dealing with a growing numbers and uh, a limited number of ICU beds in parts of the state. We are. It's a, it's a real crisis, and it's a crisis of Greg Abbott's making. Uh, by Greg Abbott tying the hands of our local leaders, county judges, mayors, school superintendents, and school boards, um, he has made a bad situation into a crisis. And so what has to happen is Republicans in Austin need to say enough is enough to Greg Abbott and to Ken Paxton, both of whom continue to take local officials to court, uh, trying to stop them from protecting uh, their constituents and from protecting school kids. It's just shameful what they are doing. And so we need Republicans to work with us uh, to say, you know what, let's leave these decisions in the hands of local leaders who are willing to make the tough decisions to protect the health and safety of, of Texans around the state. Uh, and that's, what's, uh, that's what you know, Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins is doing and, and, and others around the state. We need to empower those officials, not make their jobs more difficult. So in the short time I have left, I'm going to ask you a question that requires a much longer answer. But now looking ahead to redistricting, how do you think the caucus goes about approaching that? Well, look, you know, Republicans control the House, the Senate, uh, the governor's office. Um, it, it's really a question of how Republicans are going to approach redistricting. Um, if Republicans will work with us and draw fair maps, 
we could have a, a fair process that fairly recognizes the dramatic growth in Texas. 95% of our staggering population growth is attributable to communities of color over the last decade. Very similar to the previous decade. But last decade, what Republicans did is that they, they gave uh, the new congressional districts uh, that Texas had gained because of its population growth uh, to, uh, to Anglo Republican communities. Uh, that's wrong. And uh, they need to rectify it this time by drawing maps that fairly reflect the tremendous growth in the minority populations in Texas and give minority communities the opportunity to elect the candidates of their choice. Representative Chris Turner, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Gromer. In addition to voting laws, Abbott's agenda for the second special session includes 16 other items. That session runs for two more weeks. August is usually a slower month in the nation's capital, but not this year. All eyes have been on Afghanistan this week after the Taliban captured the country's capital, Kabul, and images of chaos at the city's airport made headlines. President Joe Biden addressed the nation Friday as U.S. officials worked to evacuate Americans and Afghans still in the country. The past week has been heartbreaking. We've seen gut-wrenching images of panicked people acting out of sheer desperation. You know, it's completely understandable. They're frightened. They're sad. Uncertain what happens next. I don't think anyone, I don't think any one of us can see these pictures and not feel that pain on a human level. I made the decision. The buck stops with me. I took the consensus opinion. The consensus opinion was that, in fact, it would not occur if it occurred until later in the year. So it was my decision. We went and did the mission. You've known my position for a long, long time. It's time to end this war. On top of the news out of Afghanistan, last week the U.S. Senate passed a $1 trillion infrastructure bill on which the House members will vote when they return early from their August recess this week. Republican Roger Williams represents Texas's 25th congressional district, which runs along the west side of I-35 from Burleson to Austin. Here he is with Julian Gromer. Joining us this morning, U.S. Representative Roger Williams. Thank you so much for being here, Congressman. Thank you, guys. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. What, what should be done moving forward with the United States pulling out of Afghanistan? Well, of course, we need a plan. We haven't pulled out yet. I mean, we're actually uh, uh, sent more, more of our military in to, to try to get our people out. Uh, we're, in a, we're in a bad position right now. We, we didn't have a plan. It's so evident. Uh, we should have decided to get our, our, our men and women out and then go to the next phase. But it's a, it's a mess right now. And, and I think what we need to do, I mean, we've got, we've got the airport, but we don't have the roads going into the airport. The Taliban controls that right now. They've got our weapons. Uh, they're holding people hostage. So I think, uh, you know, uh, we need to maybe take a look at the stronger force in there to get control of the roads and bridges again to be able to uh, get our people out. We've got to get Americans out of there. And the idea of having to call a 1-800 number or go on the Internet and, and try to get help is just pretty unbelievable for the greatest country in the world. Representative, I, and, and I think I just heard you say it, but but let's be clear. Do you think a, a, a stronger force is necessary, more troops to maybe, in, in essence, have a conflict with the Taliban if necessary uh, to get control of the situation to the point where they, you can get Americans out? 
And, and secondly, what do you think about the interpreters and the people who helped us in this effort? Should we get them out as well? Well, to answer to your first question, we need a we need to have a, a military presence now. I mean, we're even hearing that we're 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 asked our military is asked not to fire back. Uh, you know, we don't control the same amount of ground we controlled before. Uh, if we're going to get uh, you know twenty thousand contractors out, x amount of Americans are still back there. We need to have a strong presence. We need to be bigger and stronger than the enemy. So uh, even know, if it uh, means armed conflict. Well, we don't want. We're supposed to be getting people out. The Biden administration has got us in this position by not having a plan. And now we're in a position, are we going to have armed conflict again? How are we going to get our people back? How are we going to get Americans back home? That's the problem. And uh, they don't have an answer to it. And as far as our interpreters and all the people have helped us, we need to help them for crying out loud. We can't turn our back on them. If, if, you're, if you're the Ukraine, if you're Israel, if you're Taiwan, what are you thinking about America right now? Are they my friend? Can I count on them or not? So that's the problem. I don't know. There is no good answer now. We, we're in a heck of a bind. We got more soldiers over there now. I hope we don't have conflict. But how are we going to get our Americans back? Switching subjects here. The Senate already passed the infrastructure package. Are you planning to vote for it? Well, they've passed the 2.1, i.e. bipartisan. I want to take a look at it. I want to try to find a way to vote for it. I have a big concern. I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm a big private sector guy, and I want I want more private sector involvement with building our roads, our bridges, our ports, our broadband, et cetera. Uh, it's $2.1 trillion. We don't have that money. I mean, that's Chinese borrowed money. So the more money we allow the private sector to be engaged in, some or if not all of it, it's that much less we've got to borrow and have American taxpayers pay for it. So I want to take a look exactly what is in it. And then, of course, we have the, uh, I think it's the 3.5 reconciliation bill that we got to take a look at. That's a total disaster. It gives illegals uh, amnesty. It's a huge tax increase. It increases the IRS to go after Main Street America and help pay for all, all of this. Uh, so that's something I certainly will not support. But I'll take a look at the infrastructure bill because I want to have one. Infrastructure should be bipartisan. But we've even found ourselves trying to define what the heck is infrastructure. And uh, so I want to find a way to find a way to approve it or to vote for it. But it's going to have to have private sector involvement to the extent I think is satisfactory to ease the burden on the taxpayers and create more jobs for the private sector. Let's turn to, to uh, COVID-19. Uh, Governor Abbott has banned mass mandates. Of course, there have been push pushbacks with local government and, and school districts. Do you agree with banning mass mandates, Representative, even with hospitals here in Texas and other states overwhelmed with COVID patients? Yeah, I think it should be a personal uh, uh, decision I don't believe in uh, in uh, um, mandates, but it should be a personal decision. And uh, you know, we we we've come through the last 18 months. It's just been unbelievable what COVID has done. But we can't shut the economy down. We tried that; it does not work. Uh, and uh, you know, I've had both of my shots, and I tell people that I I think they ought to get the shots. Uh, but at the same time, it's a personal decision, and uh, I, that's that's where I am on it. I mean, I, I just don't think the government needs to be telling people what to do. We got used to that with Obamacare, for example. We need to get away from that and let people make their own decisions. A new Texas law says that restaurants, bars, concert venues, and other businesses cannot ask patrons for proof of vaccination. You just said it yourself. You're a private sector guy. You've always talked about being pro-business. Do you think businesses then should have a choice on whether or not to require proof of vaccination? 
Well, it, again, it should be a business decision. And if, if the customer doesn't like it, they don't have to choose that business anymore. If they think the prices are too high or the service is not as good. But it needs to be a personal decision. And if businesses want to make that call, then that would be what their policy might be and let the consumer decide if they want to do that or not. But the business, because of a new law passed here in Texas, doesn't have that choice to ask for proof of vaccination from the patrons. Do you think they should have that choice? Well, I, I believe in choices. And the fact of the matter is, I don't believe the government should mandate it. Uh, and if, uh, you know, people want to show what the business wants to see to do business with them, that's a personal decision by the business and the consumer. Representative, redistricting, which is always a fun process, right? That begins in the fall as the legislature will begin the process of redrawing congressional and legislative boundaries. So what's on tap for North Texas? Do you expect any changes in the congressional lines? Will we get a new congressional district? Well, there's going to be changes. We know there's changes every 10 right. years. And of course, this being the greatest state in America, we have people moving in. So we have two new congressional seats. We do know that population is moving out of West Texas into the I-35 corridor. So I would assume that there will be a new seat somewhere up here in North Texas. Uh, I don't have any uh, reason not to believe that. But uh, so there probably will be, and uh, we'll see some boundaries changing. Uh, but that happens every 10 years. And, you know, if you're the one drawing it, uh, you're in control. If you're the one not drawing it, it's all gerrymandering, for example. But it's the way it works. And uh, uh, one of the reasons you, you want to run and win uh, in state government is every 10 years you get a ch chance to draw the congressional lines. Uh, Representative, I, I got to ask you this. You're the, you're the, the, the peerless, the, the great leader of the Republican baseball team. I know there's a game, big game yeah. coming up against the Democrats. What, what are you going to put out there on the field? And I hear you got a new star, you know, working we out, Jake some, Elsey. We have some, yeah, we, September 29th is the game. And as you know, it's a, been played 111 years. Uh, but September 29th at Nat Stadium, we've already raised more money than we've ever raised before for charity. Uh, but our team this year is a really good team. We've got a young team. We've got a bunch of 50-year-olds. And uh, I've got some pitchers uh, for a team, and they can throw strikes. So in any league, Romer, you know this. If you throw strikes, you're gonna, you are gonna. got good pitching. you got a good chance to win. So if the, I tell everybody, if the coaching doesn't blow it, we ought to win this year. All right. Thanks, Professor. Watch out for Colin Allred. All right. And thanks so much for joining us, Congressman. Finally, the fight over face masks in schools has wound its way through the courts for the last couple weeks. Dozens of districts statewide have defied Texas Governor Greg Abbott's executive order and required masks as COVID-19 cases continue to climb. Rulings by different courts in different counties have muddied the waters a bit on what school districts can and can't require. In Fort Worth ISD, Superintendent Kent Scribner announced at a school board meeting two weeks ago that masks would be mandated. But just days later, a district judge granted parents a temporary restraining order against that requirement, saying the Fort Worth ISD could not supersede the governor's orders. At a school board meeting the following week, trustees voted to join a lawsuit filed by several South Texas school districts. In that suit, a Travis County judge granted the schools a restraining order. In the meantime, Fort Worth ISD says it still strongly encourages face masks. As the back and forth stretches on, here's the superintendent with Julian Cromer. Dr. Ken Scribner, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. 
Let's start with this. I mean, just a roller coaster of mandate, no mandate, mandate, no mandate. Where does uh, Fort Worth ISD stand right now? Well, Fort Worth ISD is in a little bit of a different position than most districts. We have a specific uh, uh, temporary restraining order that affects just our district, uh, not allowing us to issue a mask uh, requirement. Instead, uh, we are strongly encouraging mask wearing. I visited about a dozen schools this week and happy to report that 85% or so of students, faculty and staff are using uh, masks as a result of our encouragement. And that I find that encouraging. Ideally, doctor, what would you like the policy to be in a perfect world? What, what, what would it be? Well, here in Fort Worth, uh, I was uh, uh, contacted by over 125 physicians, uh, pediatric physicians from Cook Children's Hospital, and they uh, recommended uh, mask requirement. We recognize uh, that the court ruling does not allow us to do that. We certainly are going to honor that court ruling. But uh, while masks are 100 percent uh, effective, they certainly provide an additional layer of protection. We think that's the right thing to do. Uh, we are also encouraging our staff and uh, we'll be recommending a stipend uh, for our staff to, to get vaccinate, vac vaccinated like many other districts are doing. Uh, we just think if we have a multi-layered uh, approach, uh, that's how we can keep our students safe. The important thing is we want our students in school. We saw last year that uh, those students who participated virtually uh, performed at a lower rate as compared to their uh, counterparts. So we want to open schools this week and keep them open for the remainder of the school year. Dr. Scribner, I imagine you don't know this number, um, but do you have a good feeling about the number of people who are vaccinated, staff, teachers, employees, et cetera? Uh, we don't uh, know that number specifically. Uh, we, we, we don't ask for that, but we certainly encourage our, 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 our staff and our students, 12 years and older, uh, to get vaccinated. We think that is uh, that will provide a, a shield of protection uh, for our youngest learners who are not yet uh, eligible. You know, across the country, there have been some ugly scenes of, of people clashing over masks and mask mandates, uh, particularly at, at schools and school district meetings. What's the situation in Fort Worth? Have, have you gone through that or have you been able to sort of stay clear of it so far? Well, Fort Worth is much like all other urban districts across Texas and, and the nation. We have uh, passionate opinions on both ends of the continuum. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I joke with my with my colleagues that uh, we are leading in a 49 percent world. Forty nine percent is going to be in favor of what you decide. And Forty nine percent is going to be against. And there's only kind of two percent of us in the middle who have to navigate that space. Uh, so, yes, there is a great deal of passion on both sides. Uh, our uh, responsibility, as always, first and foremost, is to keep our students, faculty and staff safe. And, and healthy, and we are trying to navigate the middle and make decisions, make decisions in the best interest uh, of, of the entire student population. You know, you, you pull an interesting phrase there, navigating the middle. What is that like to try to do that and do that successfully? <laughs> well, uh, this is probably the most challenging leadership scenario that any of us have, uh, have encountered. 
Uh, I've, I've said to young administrators that conflict is the DNA of leadership, and this certainly is, an, is, is a time where we are experiencing conflict on one side for not doing enough, on the other side for doing uh, too, too little. So again, I think what we have to do is recognize this is a global pandemic, this is a, a public health crisis that we cannot allow to be a generational educational crisis. But we really have to have to make decisions, depersonalize it, because it's not about any one of us individually. It's a it's a community decision that ultimately we have to arrive at. So, Doctor, how cool will it be to see students in classrooms? In that well, sort of uh, this last week was our first week of school, and we are pleased to see a great uh, deal of energy and a yeah. good number of our students. We're very pleased with our enrollment numbers, uh, and and it was, it was exciting. Uh, uh, really, uh, understanding that students wanted to be back in school. In fact, we had a little bit of a of an indication in the summer. We have. Uh, typically, 5,000 students participating in summer school. This year, summer was school was for everyone. We had 15,000 students participate, three times the amount. So I think there is a, a pent-up demand for, for students and families to, to reconnect and get back into school. We just want to make sure we're doing this safely so students can remain in school and we do not have to close down uh, our schools. Community spread is one thing. But, uh, but the schools, with regard to our safety protocols uh, and hand sanitizing and, clean, and uh, cleaning our campuses on a regular basis, social distancing where possible, uh, is gonna be, uh, the kinds of, are going to be the kinds of things that allow us to remain open. I don't know about Julie, but uh, I got to tell you, I used to dread this time of year because I wanted the summer to go on a little bit longer. Well, I'm from Buffalo, New York, and we did I, yeah. too, and I'm from yeah. Buffalo, New York, and every time it was time to go back, all I kept thinking is, it's going to snow soon, it's going to snow soon, so I always, I kind of dreaded fall for that purpose, but it took me a second when we moved, when I moved here from the north to get used to school starting so early, which I don't know if that helps or hurts this year in terms of the pandemic. Right. Well, we know that there was a great deal of, uh, of pandemic learning loss across yeah. the nation, and uh, we want to get our kids in school. In fact, we are spending uh, some of our federal dollars to extend the school day, to extend the school year. We are offering 14 Saturdays of instruction to help our students catch up. We saw from the data many years ago, the hur uh, Hurricane Katrina, it took some of those students relocated to Texas uh, three and four years to get back to where they should have been. We don't have three, three or four years to, to waste. We need to, to double down our efforts, invest in those uh, communities in the greatest need, and catch our students up as quickly as possible. Dr. Scribner, you're a great guest, and we always appreciate having you, especially during this busy time. So thank you. Well, thank you. A preliminary injunction hearing for Fort Worth ISD is set for August 26th. Thanks to State Rep Chris Turner, Congressman Roger Williams, and Superintendent Kent Scribner for joining the show this week. Stay up to date with everything related to Texas politics at NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. We'll talk to you next week.